Did you guys realize that um, uh, Easter was the very first Sunday that we ever had together as a church? This is two years of Anthony. That's right. Yeah, go us. We did it, you know. Statistically, most uh, small church plants don't make it past the first year. Bucking those odds, guys. We're really doing it. Now, <laughs> on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. And as much as we prefer not being reminded of this, inevitably, we realize on some level that it must be true. And I know this because uh, on a typical Sunday, I have this tradition with my two kids. Uh, we live nearby, and on a Sunday, we like to take a long walk through the Lincoln neighborhood here in Vancouver, and we get a baked good from a coffee shop. We play in the park. We, we make up stories about the houses and the people and the animals that we pass on the walk. And a few weeks ago, our walk came to an abrupt halt when we happened upon this in the middle of the sidewalk. Oh, wow, that was quite a reaction. I didn't expect that much. Man, people really empathize with the mouse. It was a small, dead mouse. Now, both of my kids were fascinated. Um, they had never seen a mouse this close, period, let alone that had lost its life. Uh, Beck, my son, who's four, he was entranced. Uh, here he is studying. He had to get as close as he possibly could. He studied the creature's small, immobile frame for signs of injury, but he found none. So he asked, who was it that has killed this mouse? And I stood there beholding the scene and sort of scratching my chin, and I thought, man, where to begin? Because it's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, because I knew my son was asking about more than the simple cause of death. He was asking about the cause of death behind the cause of death. Or in other words, why do things die? And sadly, at four years old, death is a concept with which Beck already has some level of familiarity. In the four short years of his life, both my own dad and my wife Abby's dad have fallen sick and died. But complicated invisible cause and effect is a bit beyond the comprehension, of, uh, the comprehension pay grade of a four-year-old, right? Uh, that is both the specificity of something like invading cancer cells or just the broad inevitability of death in a world marked by tragedy are notions he understands less than something like, I don't know, maybe a cat bit the mouse. Uh, or maybe someone stepped on it or it had a bad spot of cheese, we don't know. The question becomes further complicated the older that we get, rather than what we hope or often expect, which is that we might at some point finally wrap, around, wrap our heads around this idea of death. Uh, reclusive cartoonist and genius Bill Watterson summarized this idea well in the late 90s when after observing a dead bird on his own lawn, he sketched the lifeless animal and then he placed that sketch as the opening panel in one of his beloved Calvin and Hobbes comic strips. Now in this uh, particular installment, which just begins with the sketch of the dead bird, six-year-old Calvin and his tiger Hobbes consider the mystery of death as they behold a fallen sparrow. And as the strip sort of climaxes, Calvin admits it's all very confusing, and he says, I suppose it will make sense when we grow up, to which Hobbes agrees, no doubt. The strip concludes with a wordless panel. Both Calvin and Hobbes sit beneath the tree, watching as several sparrows go flying by. The tragic inference being that death will find these other birds as well eventually. And we, the readers, most of, uh, of us ourselves grown, or at least more so than a six-year-old, know what Calvin doesn't know, which is that death will remain mysterious. Of course, of course, death is not entirely shrouded in mystery. We have ways of describing it. We have ways of explaining it and understanding its significance or lack thereof. 
Uh, comedian and outspoken atheist, Ricky Gervais, summarizes one popular understanding of life and death like this. We have the same life cycle as any other animal, which is our parents mate, we're born, we grow, we mate, our parents die, all our friends die, and then we die. And what strikes me about this is as, you know, kind of nihilistic and bleak as it may sound, he's actually quite right in the general sense. Now, let me interject a bit of trivia about myself at this point. Uh, a few months ago, our church walked through this ancient tool of spiritual formation called the Enneagram. Something I learned in that process is that uh, I'm an Enneagram 4, which means, uh, among many other things, that part of the brokenness of my personality often includes a strange fascination with death. Go figure. And this makes me one among what I suspect is a very small number of pastors who consistently remind their churches that they're all going to die. Um, and there's the reminder again by the ha happy Easter. Um, and, it, you know, it kind of surfaces in funny ways. Abby has one of those, uh, like, hip marquee letter boards hanging in our living room. You know, you arrange the different letters on it how you'd like. And she'd prefer that it say cute, witty, proverbial things like this, which is true. You know, it's great. I looked at it and I said, well, it's true. Abby, great way to go. But I find it funny to arrange the sign to say things like this when she's not around, uh, <laughs> which is also true. And... Um, <laughs> Listen, as doom and gloom as all of that sounds, I actually, I think, have a very valid reason for, for making death a recurring conversational motif. And, and the reason is this. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and as such, I understand the world and the people in it and the cosmos and life and death through the lens of my master and my teacher, Jesus. And of course through the scriptures that Jesus so endorsed. So with all of that in mind, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you're at all familiar with the story of the Bible, then chances are this bit of narrative is, is nothing new to you. Let's read the Bible's opening lines. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It is written, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, or that's an ancient Hebrew way of saying the sky and the land. He created everything. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surfaces of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, at face value, this seems like about as early in the story as you can possibly get, but there are actually hints that that's not quite the case. For example, notice the wording in verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. Some of your Bibles say void. In Hebrew, it's actually this poetic phrase, tohu wabohu. Some scholars argue that a better translation might be wild and waste. And the reason is that elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, when this phase, tohu wabohu, shows up, nine times out of ten, it's describing a desert wasteland. Now, this is particularly noteworthy given that many of us, when reading Genesis 1, sort of imagine a realm of non-existence into which God crafts the known universe. And that's what Genesis 1 is talking about. But the text is actually describing a sort of wild, chaotic wasteland. And consequently, many scholars argue that the story of Genesis is actually about God creating a specific place in which humanity might dwell, and it's right in the middle of a chaotic war zone. Now, how do we know that it's a war zone? In the story, God crafts humanity in a garden that they might become his partners, his co-laborers, his image bearers. Now, they're going to partner with God, but in doing what? Look back down at Genesis 1, and let's read verse 28. Genesis 1, 28 says, God blessed them, the humans, and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. Now, that word subdue is the Hebrew word chabash, 
which is a treat for all you Seinfeld fans. It's uh, simply a synonym for um, something like cultivation in kind of the modern normal translation. But chabash can be translated to conquer or to force into subjection, which is strange. Right in the middle of this creation narrative, God is saying to his co-laborers, we are going to conquer this chaotic wasteland and force it into subjection, meaning this is actually a warfare word. Now, what in the world kind of war has taken place to render the cosmos wild and waste before we even got here to necessitate that human beings need to conquer and subdue the creation? Of course, at this point in the story, you read in Genesis, and you, the reader, aren't sure. You have no clue, just little snippets, little hints and inferences. It's a bit like a novel or a film that sort of opens in the midst of a conflict already in process. You understand only that there's more to the story, but you don't know what that more is yet, and you begin to assemble the bigger picture as you progress through the narrative. And the next big clue comes just a bit later. Turn over, turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and let's look at verse 15. The story goes on and it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Stakes are very high with this particular tree. Now, in the story, God crafts this beautiful place in which humanity might dwell. He gives them this strange but really plain command. You know the story. Just don't eat from this one tree because the consequence is death. It's pretty, pretty blatant. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Let's read uh, as something strange happens. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, actually, we can eat from fruit trees from the, uh, in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent replies, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, if you're reading the Genesis narrative and you're not at all familiar with the story of the Bible, you're thinking, what the heck? Who is the serpent? And it talks? What in the world is going on? What is he doing in God's good garden? And if you grew up in the church, you're thinking like, wait, isn't the garden perfect? Why does it have an evil talking snake in it? Um, whose opening lines in the story are to question God and what God has specifically said just moments prior to this in the story. Now, the author of Genesis never names the serpent. He never elaborates on its origin. Uh, Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey says this of the strange snake. The Bible doesn't say why or how, or how or why this thing even got in the garden. It just presents the snake as this creature who is in rebellion against God and wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path toward death. And so whatever this snake is, it is the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. And of course, you know the story of Genesis continues along these lines. Humanity is led astray by the snake, spoiler alert, and they're banished from the good garden. Before they go, however, God makes this really interesting promise. He says that though humanity has blown it, though they've rejected God's rule in favor of being their own bosses, that even so, God will not give up on people. He wants people to be his partners, his co-laborers. And one day, God says, someone will come, a son of Eve or a human being, and this son will, in God's own language, crush the serpent's head, eradicating evil at its very source, though the serpent will, in the process, bite this rescuing person on his heel. 
And this is, of course, so early on in the story that it seems really strange. It's not resolved in the immediate sense, and the promise just kind of hangs in the air as the story carries on. And really, one way of understanding the entire biblical narrative from there on out, and really from, begin, from the beginning to the end, is that it is the story of an ongoing cosmic war. So it begins in a war zone, as we've already seen, and as the story continues to unfold, the authors of the Old Testament depict God's ongoing battle with all kinds of fantastic language. In ancient Hebrew thinking, the world itself was surrounded by savage waters that were populated by vicious entities or monsters. In fact, the sea itself was a metaphor for the chaos of evil. Remember that for just a few minutes. And this kind of imagery uh, was not terribly unique in the ancient Near Eastern world, and in particular in ancient Near Eastern mythology, in which malevolent gods and monsters warred in the invisible world that surrounded humanity. But in Hebrew thinking, Yahweh, who is the one true creator God, warred against and rebuked and even vanquished the sea as a symbol of evil and all the cosmic entities that lurked in the sea, including the very real, very personal entities that cause evil in the world. Look at these lyrics from the Psalms later in the Hebrew scriptures. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. Later in Psalm 74, it says, How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garments and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the seas by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the, de the desert. So it sounds like metal lyrics or something. And... Uh, then later on, uh, in this really strange, kind of interesting, what we think is almost like an ancient uh, uh, Near Eastern play, the book of Job, we get this. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? And then in chapter 26, by his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. Now, what I want us to understand for tonight's purposes is that Yahweh, the creator God, his victory over cosmic evil was noteworthy and admirable precisely because Yahweh's opponents were actually very real entities and they were very dangerous. Meaning, why did the ancient authors of the scriptures dedicate song lyrics and celebration to Yahweh's triumph? over evil entities that work in the world if those entities were actually just imaginary or symbolic or metaphorical? Or why celebrate Yahweh's victory if it were over an opponent who was ultimately kind of weak and really easily put away or ultimately under God's control? No, in the, in the story of the scriptures, there is a very real, very personal, very autonomous evil, and it is alive and at work in God's creation from the beginning. This is, of course, not a popular notion in our kind of post-enlightenment modern Western world, and yet understanding this, I would argue, is crucial in understanding the mess that we are in as human beings and why this particular day of celebration is so important. Now, the story of the Bible opens in this war-torn universe. The effects of that devastating conflict invade God's good world in chapter 3. That's really fast. And the fallout is just catastrophic. I mean, humanity is riddled with the viral infection of evil, and destruction permeates the created order at a staggering rate. 
when God does triumph in the world, when good triumphs in the world, as it sometimes does, then Yahweh gets credit. There's all sorts of songs of celebration about it, but the problem itself lingers, and it lingers on a global scale. Even nature itself is cursed. Even God's own people, the people of Israel, are infected with the darkness of evil, and the infection escalates to such a degree that if you know the story, God eventually becomes fed up, he withdraws his hand of protection, and the consequences of Israel's sin close in on her. And when the Old Testament sort of comes to a close, it ends as something of a bummer. God's presence has left his chosen people. They've been driven from their land and their homes. There's no snake crusher that's come on the scene. There's no son of Eve. There's no rescuing that's taken place. And then the New Testament opens on this interesting new character. He's a peasant stonemason, we think, and his name is Yeshua Manasarat, or Jesus, who is from Nazareth because he comes from this obscure village outside of Jerusalem. And when this Jesus who is from Nazareth begins to travel and teach as a Jewish rabbi in the first century, he brings with him an interesting new development in the story of God's cosmic conflict with evil. The talking snake gets a name. And he actually becomes, the snake that is, a central character and theme in the teachings of Jesus. It is an entity called Hasatan, which is where we get the name or title Satan. And to be fair, it isn't a proper name so much as it is a title that literally means the one who is opposed. And that doesn't mean that the Satan is not a personal entity. The authors of the New Testament understand it to be horrifyingly personal. It's not just an intangible force at power in the universe, but it is a person. In fact, it's Jesus himself who connects Satan to the snake, describing the awful longevity of his evil, saying this, the devil, which is another title given to Hasatan, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, here in this particular text, uh, the beginning, he was a murderer from the beginning, refers to the very, very beginning, meaning before the garden, there was cosmic war, and the Satan was already a murderer, already killing, already lying. So he's not only horrifyingly personal, but he's horrifyingly powerful. In fact, several times, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the prince of this world, he says, now's the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He goes on to say, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. But he has no hold over me, Jesus says. And then later the prince of this world now stands condemned. That word prince in Greek is the word archon, and it refers to the highest official of political power in a given region of the Greco-Roman world, meaning though Jesus absolutely understood God, Yahweh, to be the ultimate ruler over the cosmos, he clearly understood Satan to have power and to have dominion in the world. In fact, three of the four biographies of Jesus' life feature this really interesting scene in which Jesus gets tempted by Satan, and during that temptation, Satan claims to have authority over all kingdoms of the world. It's written like this, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. And if you know the story, it's really fascinating because Jesus rebukes Satan, absolutely, but he does not dispute that this claim is true. And what's more, as the New Testament continues, early disciples of Jesus further emphasize, not de-emphasize, the very real, very personal existence of Satan and his dominion over the world. First John says this, 
we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Well, so when evil transpires in the world, there are people who default to God is in control language, but then there are times in the New Testament where it is just blatantly written, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians, Paul takes things even further saying this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. And these are just a few examples. Honestly, we could go on for quite a bit, but we won't for the sake of time. Don't worry. The point is that Jesus understood his mission as one of cosmic warfare against evil. Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, describes the work of Jesus this way. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and, listen, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. When Jesus confronts evil, he confronts the one from whom evil originates. When Jesus heals the sick, for example, he does that as an act of warfare against cosmic entities of evil at work in the universe. Jesus is that promised son of Eve. He has come to, in the language of God himself, crush the serpent's head. In the language of Peter, he has come to heal all who are under the power of the devil. Or my personal favorite, this from John. Or, or apparently, I'll just read it to you guys because I missed this one, but you'll love it. This is my personal favorite. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Again, that language hearkening all the way back to the very beginning of the story. But listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It doesn't get much more all-inclusive than that. Now, why does this matter? Because evil is very real. I think few of us would argue with that. Or if we would, we, maybe we'd say something more like, oh, evil is some kind of intangible, ambiguous force in the universe. But that's not the story of the scriptures. It is not an intangible force. It is not the yin to good's yang. It is the work of a very real, very personal entity that has been at work doing evil from the very beginning. And Jesus has come to crush the serpent's head. But how? And wait, you know, if you're thinking, oh, he's going to do that, but doesn't in the prophecy in Genesis, doesn't the serpent strike his heel? What does that mean? And all of this, of course, brings us to today, Easter Sunday. Turn one more time in your Bibles, if you don't mind, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, we're going to read the story of Easter together. Matthew 27, let's read beginning with verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, when they had executed him, when they had nailed him to uh, uh, the, uh, the most torturous, humiliating means of public execution that the Roman Empire had to offer, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. 
Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they all mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, Jesus said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So Jesus suffers an agonizing, humiliating public execution, and then he dies. Skip over to chapter 28, Matthew 28, and let's read beginning in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the other Mary, poor thing, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. It's true, he died, but he's not here. He is risen Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay if you don't believe us. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. (laughs) They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, this story is not only the dazzling centerpiece of the entire Bible. Within the Christian tradition, it is the fulcrum moment of human history. Because the story of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection is the story of how we are reconciled to God, how we're rescued, why we have hope, why we have a purpose and a future. And the question remains, like, but how and why? Why does Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection do all that? Now, in modern Western kind of church speak, we have a well-worn platitude that summarizes the event by saying something like, oh, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. That's what I was taught growing up and what I recapitulated in my earliest memories of telling other people the story about Jesus. And it isn't untrue, to be sure. It's absolutely true. But it is, I think, egregiously simplistic. You see, what happens in Jesus' work on the cross, in his resurrection, it accomplishes a great many profoundly beautiful things. In the resurrection of Jesus, God reveals the truth about himself. In the resurrection of Jesus, in the, in the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see that God would rather die for his enemies than kill them. We also see that God beholds a universe that is fundamentally set against him, and God himself does the work of restoring the possibility of friendship and love between people and God. In the resurrection, God masterly, masterfully forgives an entire human history of failure and provides for us a way to put our old life of wandering in darkness behind us. God takes the consequences of the mistakes that we've made into himself rather than simply standing back and allowing those consequences to destroy us. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it is the undoing of death itself and it is the power of resurrection in all the creation, the foreshadowing of the great resurrection of all human beings and ultimately the renewing of the cosmos, which is a pretty big thing. Now, but listen to me on this one. For hundreds and hundreds of years of church history, 
it was uniformly understood that though all these dimensions of the Easter story are absolutely true and absolutely crucial, they can all be understood as facets of the most fundamental thing that Jesus came to accomplish, which is in the language of the scriptures, Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Yes, the story of Easter is, is the story of how God saves us, but he does that by destroying the evil one. In theology, this is called Christus Victor, a Latin phrase that means the Messiah is victorious. In fact, when Paul, who's one master apprentice of Jesus who goes on to author most of the New Testament, he encounters Jesus and he's told that the mission before Paul is to go and tell other people about what Jesus did, and there's a specific reason and that reason is, yes, hey, we did it. Thanks, Daniel. Or, or I guess me. I made the slides. Thank you for clicking them. That sounded so selfish. I'm so sorry, Daniel. You're doing a wonderful job. I could not do it without I actually couldn't do it without you. Have you stand up here pointing at a screen that doesn't move? Okay. Sorry. Back to Paul. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, Jesus says to Paul, and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is the long-promised, snake-defeating king. And though in the story the snake does bite his heel, just like God said, Jesus is humiliated, he's beaten, he's executed alongside common criminals, and he dies. But Jesus is raised from death to life, and in doing so, he crushes the serpent's head. Now, this begs, I think, a very important and very valid question, which is, if Jesus has indeed crushed the snake, and 2,000 years ago at that, why did the New Testament authors after Jesus continue to call Satan the God of this age? Why does Satan's parade of sorrow continue on today? Why is there still evil and suffering and death? Why does my son still discover dead mice on a Sunday afternoon? Why do we hurt one another? Why do our loved ones fall sick and die? Why do parents neglect and abuse their own children? Why do wars rage and drones strike down bombs and refugees drown in the sea? And remember, one way of understanding the entire biblical narrative, as I said a little while ago, is that it is the story of an ongoing cosmic war. Now, liken that narrative to other um, more, you know, recent stories of war. I think we can understand this tension by kind of comparing it to the time between D-Day and V-Day during World War II. The story goes that on uh, June 6, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beach in Normandy, France, and they defeated, defeated the German military there. Now, historians uh, apparently generally agree that this was the decisive victory moment in the war because this battle ensured the victory of the Allied, Allied for, forces against Germany. Now, even so, it took another year of fighting before V-Day was actually declared, though the war had been won in principle in that single battle a year prior. Greg Boyd puts it like this. In the same way, Christ, in principle, defeated the powers with the unsurpassable love he unleashed through his incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won. But we are still waiting for V-Day. In the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. Indeed, sometimes an enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. I read this week about the way that in American prisons prior to the 1960s, when guards would lead prisoners on death row down the jail halls, they would call out, dead man walking. 
And the origin and exact purpose of this kind of horrifying practice is debated, but some suspect it may have been a warning to other prisoners. A condemned prisoner has kind of nothing to lose and is therefore typically more dangerous. Or it may have been a different sort of warning. You know, those who do evil, as this prisoner did, may just as easily meet his fate. And everyone around needs to remember that. But in either event, the prisoner continued to haunt his jail until the day his sentence was carried out in full. But he lived in that jail as a dead man walking. Now, as disciples of Jesus, the, the scriptures remind us again and again that our battle is in the language of Ephesians, not against flesh and blood, or not against people, but against the evil powers that energize all the sin and all the evil and all the suffering in the entire world. Our battle is against the snake and against his forces of evil. And though he does roam free for a spell, for sure, the decisive victory has been won. Satan is a dead man walking. The snake is dead. And yes, we continue to fight in the here and now to reject evil by doing good, to love God and to love others, to be empowered by God's spirit, to embody the teachings of Jesus in our own lives, in our work, in our families, in our communities. And in doing so, we're actually pushing evil back right now in the time between D-Day and V-Day. We don't have to wait for V-Day, though that will be the day that it's realized in full. In the meantime, we can and do push evil back. But we do not fight as people who are overpowered, nor as those who have no purpose, nor as those without hope, nor as those with a sort of uncertain fate. We have all of that because of Easter Sunday, because of what we celebrate today. Because Jesus is risen, we embrace a bold confidence that evil and death are defeated today and that they will be forever destroyed on a coming day in the future. Because Jesus is risen, we get to cry out in obstinate defiance that though evil does rage for a season, the snake is still dead. Because Jesus is risen, when my son asks me, will Jesus make this mouse better? I get to smile and say, oh, Beck, just you wait. He's going to do a lot more than that. Will he make the mouse better? Heck, yes. And he will heal every hurt, every injustice, every rock and stream and blade of grass, every animal, every molecule, any and every person who will have Jesus as their rescuer will be set to rights, restored, redeemed, rescued, and made new. Yes, heck yes, Jesus will make everything better. Because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that is why this is our day of celebration, the most significant of all celebrations for disciples of Jesus. Here, we behold evil and remember that it will be no more. Every unkind word spoken, every act of injustice, every gesture of cruelty, every child beaten or molested, every rape, every murder, every bullet fired from every gun, every war raged, every genocide, every child abandoned or passed around foster homes, every marriage shattered by infidelity, every news broadcast of every new death and abuse and amber alert, every child trafficked into the sex trade, every human made a slave to so sneak or harvest coffee beans, every woman abusing drugs to deal with the horror of the porn industry in which she is trapped, every mass shooting, every single month, every cancer cell, every ravaging hurricane and tsunami, every act of war and torture, every bout of war-riddled PTSD, every abuse that gives way to more violence and more pedophilia, every child weeping, every bruise, every tear, it all goes coursing in and through the ancient source of evil, the foul snake who the scriptures say, 
day leads the whole world astray, but not for long. And here today, on Easter Sunday, Jesus raises his foot over evil and he crushes the serpent's head. And of course, because of today, we look with joy to a coming day on the horizon when the snake will not only be defeated, but he will be destroyed. And because of that, we say in defiance, the snake is dead. Here is our great hope that God has seen the suffering in the world and he has done something about it. And yes, we do live in the tension between the now and the not yet. The decisive victory has been won and the war is yet to conclude in full, but it is coming. So all our tears, every sickness and failure and death, we hope, and not as those lingering in ambiguity, but as people who live in the glorious light of Easter Sunday. A while back, um, some of us here at Van City wrote this song about the beautiful reality of Easter, and we put it like this. The snake is dead. Long live the king who crushed the serpent's head. The king, he lives forevermore, but the snake does not. He's dead. Amen, Lord Jesus. He is risen. The tomb is empty. Death is defeated. The snake is dead. Let's celebrate together. Would you guys stand with me as I pray and invite God's Spirit to empower us to sing and celebrate?